All right, we are back. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and this is hour two. And we are talking about this really explosive lawsuit filed by the attorney general in the state of New York against Donald Trump and his two adult sons. And Jennifer Todd, professor of law, Western New England University School of Law, is joining us, as well as David Sorsky. He is a New York attorney with more than 15 years of experience in civil fraud litigation. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for returning. Always a pleasure to see you, my friend. And thank you, David, uh, for joining us today. Uh, let's start with you, David. Donald Trump has so many cases filed against him, some criminal, some civil. It's hard to keep up with all of them and hard to know which ones you know, are in civil court versus uh, criminal courts. And when you think of insurance fraud, when, you th- when I think of insurance fraud, I-, I think of somebody committing a crime or someone who's Again, you know, making false statements to banks or lending institutions. So let's start with why is this a civil, i.e. meaning money is at stake, not Donald Trump's freedom. Why is this a civil trial instead of a criminal trial since fraud is being alleged by the attorney general in New York? Hi, thanks. So, well, this is an executive law claim brought by the attorney general. And New York has a very um, robust set of civil laws that the attorney general can can enforce in order to assure that the marketplace maintains uh, remains free of fraud. And what's what's interesting about the executive law and all of the claims that are being litigated right now are brought under this executive law that can only be enforced by the attorney general is that. They are allegations of fraud, but they don't require findings of intent, which you would typically find in a common law fraud claim. All of these claims um, can be established by the attorney general just based upon proof that the Trump organization and Donald Trump and the other defendants were engaged in practices that tended to put false statements or misleading statements into the marketplace, into the environment, just maintaining fraudulent books and records, maintaining false statements, false valuations, false appraisals. If you have a pattern of doing that, you're creating the opportunity for fraudulent activity in the marketplace. And the attorney general, with the public's interest behind her, can come forward and can say, this is a bad enough case for me as the attorney general of the state of New York to step in and and seek penalties, civil penalties, uh, for that kind of that kind of misconduct. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, very clear, understood. But Jennifer, why is there a trial going on since the attorney general was successful in her summary judgment motion? So she filed a motion, basically asking the court to decide issues of law based on the papers, like you know, basically saying we don't need Donald Trump or any witnesses to come into court. Your Honor, you can look at these records, you can look at these documents and see a clear pattern of fraudulent statements being made. And the judge uh, agreed, uh, for the most part, with the attorney general and granted uh, the motion and deemed Donald Trump, uh, you know, a cheat and a fraud. So what is the trial about? I think that's confusing for a lot of people, given the judge's ruling on that motion. Sure. And um. You know, what David described is the executive law, which is 6312, and the judge did rule on those claims, right? But the judge has not yet ruled on the other causes of action or ruled on what the remedies will be on the fraud claims that we just talked about. 
So the judges got the, the trial is moving forward to deal with the falsification of business records, the conspiring to issue uh, false financial statements and committing and conspiring to commit insurance fraud. And these other types of claims, the reason why the judge decided, you know what, I don't think I can rule on the papers. I think there's some factual issues. I still need to decide. I want to hear witnesses is because those laws are harder to prove, right? Because they do require proof of intent. And I think he needs to judge the witnesses credibility on those. But those are kind of like a sideshow, you know, or to mix metaphors. The main entree was the part that's been legally determined already, which is the those which is the big fraud claims. And so for that piece of it, what the judge is going to need to decide is just how much money um, Donald Trump will need to disgorge. And I, I love that word. Um, and that means give up ill-gotten gains. And so the judge actually has to was probably quite interested, and David knows this better than I do, at kind of figuring this out based on the testimony of the accountant, based on the testimony soon of Michael Cohn and so on, and, and maybe Donald's own testimony, though I, I kind of doubt it. So, David, why are there these other causes of action that Jennifer says the attorney general does have uh, the burden of establishing intent? Because you just walked us through this legislative scheme that allows the attorney general to file an action without having to establish intent. So why why the other causes of action? Is that just muddying the water and making for an unnecessary lengthy proceeding? Well, you've got a, you've got a few things going on with the with the other claims and I, and I agree with Jennifer. I mean, basically the issue here is already decided and if you read Justice Engeron's decision from um from late September and gave it any attention. I mean, he has absolutely told the public exactly what's going on here, which is that the Trump organization and Donald Trump are fraudsters. There's no question about it at this point. And, you know, I have never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a decision as scathing in its treatment of a defendant to the point that when you read the decision, I mean, it's enough. You just, you, as you're going through it, it's just, there's more and more and more. But what you've got here with these claims, you've got your your straightforward um, fraudulent documents or false falsified documents claims. And then you've got some conspiracy claims. And then you've got your insurance fraud claim and your um, falsifying financial statements claims. The conspiracy claims are probably what is you know most, most interesting to the judge. Um, because so you have your fraud claim, but then the law also provides for additional penalties when there's a conspiracy. When more than one person is involved, the law basically says, well, that's when things tend to get really, really bad, right? It's bad enough when one person is involved and engaged in fraudulent conduct. But when you have multiple people, that's when you have a whole organization or you have lots of, you know, it can, it can spiral out of control. Um, and when it comes to conspiracy, it does raise issues of, you know, who was involved, how were they involved, what steps did they take? And I think a lot of the testimony that you've seen last week and this week is the attorney general really focusing on, you know, different individuals' roles and responsibilities in the overall scheme. And, you know, the Trump defendants trying to, you know, st step aside from liability, pin it on the accountants, pin it on other people. But, but really, this is, you know, the game's already over at this point, and we're really just trying to figure out where the bodies are going to get buried. Um, and it's not just about money. You know, there's all kinds of injunctive relief and, and non-monetary remedies that, that the attorney general is also seeking. 
you know, to bar Donald Trump and his and his children from serving as officers and directors of New York corporations. To you know, we we know that there are issues about revoking the cert, the certificates for the companies, which was decided on summary summary basis, but has been stayed. Um, you know, there, there's a whole series of of additional non monetary relief, and I think what the judge is doing here is just you know pushing rope out to these defendants, let them go further and further into the hole, so that he will have a more and more robust record to give the most you know egregious remedies that New York State has probably ever seen. Um, no enforcement action like this has, pro- it's it's probably safe to say that no enforcement action has ever taken place like this. Nobody has ever seen anything like this. And the judge is just, just giving these guys one last chance. You know, if they had even a shred of dignity or a shred of ability to have any self-consciousness, they might be able to gain some mercy because you're talking about a former president of the United States and such a ho- high profile guy. But but given their inability to even have a modicum of you know restraint in their brazen lies and deceit, I think that this judge, Justice Engeron, is just just let them go and see what happens, see what comes out next week, create the record. You know, there's all these other actions. All of this testimony can be used in other cases, um, can be can be helpful to prosecutors, can be helpful in the criminal cases, um, can be inconsistent. And so, you know, why not give them the opportunity to just talk more, you know, put more testimony out there. It's just filled with lies. Yeah. Uh, any chances of sympathy probably uh, left the room with the attacks on the judge's clerk. He was livid about Donald Trump's uh, attacks on the his law clerk, uh, amongst other things, as you said, just the brazen lies that have been told by Donald Trump. So, Jennifer, Again, so much evidence. I, you know, I've been following what some of these witnesses have testified to. As, as David said, they're all pointing the finger at the accountants, trying to blame it on the accountant. We know one of the defenses is no harm, no victims. The banks got their money paid back on time. You know, they made money on the deal. So nobody really cared that uh, we were inflating or deflating properties. That's been a big part of what we've been hearing in the court of public opinion uh, by Donald Trump's lawyers. But are we hearing testimony from these witnesses that could cause the uh, district attorney in the state of New York to file criminal fraud charges. We know when the new DA was elected, there was, you know, some rumors that uh, there was going to be an indictment on some of these very same facts. There was a disagreement between the elected DA and uh, some of the prosecutors in his office. They left the office. Uh, But might uh, Bragg, DA Bragg, revisit that determination? And might we see yet another criminal indictment against Donald Trump. You know, uh, it could be possible when last fall, when Tish James announced this civil action against Donald Trump, his adult sons, various executives and various of these entities, she did mention, uh, because she was asked at the press conference, that she obviously, this is something they were looking at. I was more interested um, in the Southern District of New York because there was a footnote in the complaint, I think like footnote two, where uh, the attorney general references two federal statutes. One is a financial institution fraud and there's making a false statement to a financial institution, having referred that to the feds and nothing, nothing came of that. I can kind of understand they have their hands full maybe right now with two other indictments. Uh, So there's that. So David, (laughs) This conduct, and 
Uh, we're going to get into some of the details of the lies and the properties that were inflated. This isn't new. This didn't just happen on Tish James's watch. What was the official? What the officials in New York? What were you guys doing? And how is it that Donald Trump was allowed? And obviously, this isn't you personally, but it's just so mind blowing to us that are watching this outside of New York that someone like Donald Trump even before he was president, was allowed to do that, which if you or I walked into a bank tomorrow and lied about our income or valuation of our assets, we would be facing criminal charges, like, you know, five minutes after we made that lie. So how is it that he was able to skate by for so long, given this egregious conduct? Oh, Reva, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't believe you were born yesterday. Uh, you know, look, it's been an open secret in New York that Donald Trump and the Trump Foundation has been, you know, a house of uh, a shell game, house of cards, three card Monty, whatever you want to call it for years. And um, you know, look, if you go back, take it back to 2008, when we had an entire industry, the entire real estate industry was built upon these lies. And, and I'm sure a, a number of your listeners are familiar with, you know, no money down interest only loans, balloon loans, you know, uh, stated income loans, you know, people could go into the bank and say that they were making $100,000 a year working as a clerk at Home Depot and get a get a loan. Um, you know, nobody went to prison on those things, or, or the only people who went to prison were really the low level people, the high level, the high level people didn't go to prison, because, you know, that's just how it has worked a lot of the times historically. And, you know, I do think, again, I think Trump's shamelessness finally caught up to him through the presidency. You know, there's a, I think there's a very high likelihood he's not facing all of these regulatory actions if it weren't for the fact that he had, you know, effectively taken the entire country in, taken the entire country for a ride for four years and destroyed its reputation and, you know, acted way outside the norms of reasonable behavior. If there was a shred of decency and self-consciousness and self-awareness he probably could have skated. I mean, you know, Trump was investigated by by uh, Cy Vance, was investigated by um, Morgenthau years ago. You know, th th these questions have swirled for years and he was able to sidestep it. It's really the fact that, you know, everything sort of came together. You know, have the voting issues, you have the business issues, you have, you know, the criminal, the civil. It's all these different you know, all these different bases that are coming. Colliding, all these things colliding. Hold that thought, David. When we come forward, I really want you to go into detail about what some of these inflations, you know, some of these lies, misrepresentations look like because they're quite startling. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back with Jennifer Todd, professor of law at Western New England University School of Law and David Slavsky, a New York civil trial attorney with lots of experience in civil fraud trials. Okay, David, walk us through some of the most egregious allegations in this civil fraud lawsuit by the New York Attorney General against Donald Trump and his sons. Oh, these are great. I mean, all of this all of this surrounds the falsification of valuation and falsification of applications made to banks for financing various Trump projects. And you know the the essential allegation of the of the attorney general, and really what's been admitted over the last week and week and a half, is that Trump routinely 
every year would want to see the value of his properties go up no matter what trump wanted to see property values going up and you know had the last sign off on you know the applications before they went into the bank and you know it just turns out that they put whatever valuations they want and they on these properties and they they did things like you know with respect to um the trump tower uh, uh residents you know it's a ten thousand square foot condo that trump lives in on you know trump tower they reported that it was thirty thousand square feet uh the result of which is that it was overvalued on the application by something like you know 115 to 200 million dollars they claimed an excess value um the trump park avenue building uh had a bunch of rent controlled units in it they claimed that the rent controlled units were full were unregulated units and and claimed values of like 700 over what the the value actually was for those rent controlled units you know but my favorite is mar-a-lago mar-a-lago down in florida when it was when trump purchased mar-a-lago he agreed to certain restrictions on its development so he could get certain benefits in connection with that transfer so that that it would be preserved as a you know as a effectively a, a quasi public interest or public benefit property except when it's valued by trump he doesn't take into account those restrictions with those restrictions mar-a-lago's value is something like you know 15 to 20 million dollars 15 25 million something like that when you take the restrictions off and you put the valuation in the hands of a Trump flunky who'll say whatever, you know, whatever the Donald wants him to say, they come up with numbers like $425 million, $600 million. One of the valuation experts and his deposition actually gave a value of $1.5 billion for Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, how did they come up with those numbers? When he was asked under oath, this guy says, well, I can imagine any number of people who would pay that. You know, Vladimir Putin might pay that. Bill Gates might pay that. You know, my, my buddy over in Saudi Arabia might pay that. I can imagine anyone might pay $1.5 billion for Mar-a-Lago. And so that's the value of it. And it's wow. just a joke. And I think this is why, you know, the judge came down so hard. And, you know, look, the courts regard truth as sacrosanct facts matter when you go to court you know we are in the business of of bringing out the truth determining the truth put the spin away you know put the radio programs away put the you know put the press conferences away like where is the truth and when you're trying to prove fraud you just keep peeling back the layers you peel back you peel back you push 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 until you get to the edge of the story right and the edge of the story on donald trump's fabulous wealth is the $600 million valuation of Mar-a-Lago that doesn't have any basis in reality. Where does that come from? It comes from some guy who's dreaming up, you know, his Russian oligarch who might pay that money to Donald Trump someday. And that's where you get the fraud when you peel it back and you, you just keep looking for the edge of the story. And then you come up with something like this and you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, the, the testimony that's coming out last week and this week is all about just, you know, where were these false statements made? Who made them? Who were they given to? You know, and and ultimately who's responsible for them? And it turns out, lo and behold, it's Donald Trump and his kids, you know, that are that are responsible time and again. So Jennifer, anybody listening to this is saying, oh my God, uh, why would someone do this? What is the what, what like what was the benefit? Because we know Donald Trump doesn't do anything that doesn't benefit him. So walk us through why do I 
want my condo that's already 10,000 square feet to be 30,000 square feet or a property that's worth 25 million to be worth 400 million. Where, where was the value to him in these guys? I think there's, so it's twofold. One is just the bragging value, the ego, right? And the other part actually adds up to dollars. So to, to the most simple way to say this is, you know, when he was trying to be able to borrow against some of his assets, he would want the banks to believe they were worth more than they actually were, because the more collateral collateral you could put down, the more lo- you know money you can get in a loan. And the converse was also true. Um, if you had a property, I think you know one of them was like the Seven Springs property um, in Westchester County. If you have a property that you can inflate the value of and then give it away as, in what's called an easement, then you get a bigger tax deduction. So you know just the the, the ability to change what the uh, the estimated value was was just done to suit whatever purpose he had, ultimately to make him feel better about himself and profit. Um, and I wanted to say one other thing, you know, when David mentioned earlier, some of the remedies besides disgorgement, um, there are several really good ones like barring him uh, perhaps from um, operating his businesses in New York. But there's another one which it would happen sooner, which is replacing the trustees that have been, you know, kind of running these so-called these the the so-called Donald J. Trump revocable trust that was put in place to supposedly distance him when he was a president from running the business to replace those trustees with independent trustees. And the minute that happens, um, if it happens, that is that is what he doesn't want to do because not only will he not be able to inflate and deflate, but we might actually find out how much he's truly worth. I mean, Forbes is now saying it's you know only two point five billion. I think that's higher than he really is worth. And he may have, you know, so-called business partners in these LLCs, other members of the LLCs that we don't know about. Maybe his friend in Saudi is one of the members of one of these businesses. This is this is a chaotic disaster for him, ego-wise and money-wise, if he loses this case. So, David, let me ask you this. So Jennifer just explained why he would want to inflate the value of the properties. Did he then turn around for tax purposes and lie on his tax returns, deflating the value of the property? So to avoid any kind of tax liability or was it always about inflating to get bigger loans or to get you know other financial benefits? Well, I, I think we can safely conclude based upon the evidence that we already know and have that his tax returns are fraudulent. I mean, there's just no way to get from the evidence that we have to the tax returns that he filed um, without fraud. And and given that this was the MO of Trump and the Trump organization, it's just unreasonable to conclude that the tax, I don't know how he could have filed accurate tax returns based upon the evidence that we've seen. It just, it couldn't happen. In terms of like in terms of inflating and deflating, Jennifer's right. I mean, there's all kinds of, particularly with real estate, there's all kinds of ways of getting benefits from either increasing, decreasing, making contributions. You know, I mentioned with Mar-a-Lago, um, there were certain restrictions that were put on the property when he acquired it to to preserve certain character of the property that that potentially had tax benefits associated with it. Um, but but it's all just a shell game. And and as Jennifer said, you know, ultimately it comes back to telling a story, not wanting to have people verify the truth. I mean, the, the tax return story is, you know, is years old at this point, but it, we now right. know why. 
Right. He couldn't reveal it because he was always being audited. So in light of the fact that there could be no legitimate tax returns filed in light of the way he was conducting his business, do you anticipate seeing uh, you know, tax fraud charges being brought by the U.S. Department of Justice? I mean, there's so many lawsuits, as Jennifer said, DOJ has its hands full <laughs> enough. But again, if this guy has, you know, defrauded the uh, IRS and filed fraudulent tax returns, he deserves to be prosecuted, you know, just like, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes or anybody else that has been, uh, you know, prosecuted for tax fraud. Do you, you see that in the future? I think I think you could have a whole new set of charges filed every day for the next three years and you'd still have more to hit at on the Trump. You know, I think this is what what they call a target rich environment when when you go to war. And I think every prosecutor, state and federal and local is, you know, chomping at the bit to come up with another set of charges that they can throw at him. Yeah. When we come forward, Jennifer, we're going to talk about how he manages all of these trials that are on calendar and the big claim that he is chomping at the bit to testify, to set the record straight, to, you know, show the world that Letitia James is just targeting him because he's leading in the Republican primary for president. That's been the claim we've heard over and over and over again. And we've heard him say on multiple occasions that he was going to testify uh, under oath in a case. And he did. Is he going to in this case when we come forward to talk about that and more of the civil fraud case against Donald J. Trump? Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, David, uh, Trump has been out talking to the MAGA base and, you know, Fox uh, commentators and other conservative media outlets saying he is chomping at the bit to testify in this case because he wants the world to know that this case is bogus and that Letitia James is just targeting him. But given what you just said about the potential for lawsuits by not only the DOJ, but other jurisdictions, what are the chances of Donald Trump really taking the witness stand and testifying under oath in a case of this magnitude? I think there's very, very little chance. I mean, Donald Trump is a bully. And the last thing a bully wants to do is be put in a position where he uh, is not in control. One of the great things, you know, one thing that's been said about cross-examination is that it's the greatest engine for truth that the law has ever created. Um, that's kind of a, an old saw of, of trial litigators. Because when you have somebody under cross-examination, you can compel them to answer your questions. Now, that happens nowhere else in the world. Even kids refuse to tell, refuse to answer questions, right? You're, you, you, can, you can ask your kid all day long a bunch of questions and your kid will kick and scream and yell and go and run into a different room if he doesn't want to answer. Mm -hmm. But when a witness takes the stand under cross-examination, they must answer questions. Donald Trump doesn't want to answer questions. And he knows that given his mastery of the media, he gets just as much bang going out to your MAGA friends, you know, going out to his MAGA friends or going out to the microphone on the on the sidewalk, far more than he'll get out of being in the witness chair. My guess is that he comes up with some kind of, you know, some kind of excuse why he's being prevented from testifying, either his lawyers or, you know, maybe he'll blame the lawyers. He'll say, my lawyers told me I couldn't testify or the judge told me I couldn't testify or... Don Jr. told me I couldn't testify because he likes to throw his kids under the bus when, you know, when push comes to shove. So, you know, somebody, someone somewhere, some big guy, maybe Vladimir Putin will have called him up and told him that he shouldn't testify because, you know, it's a trial just like they have in Russia or something like that, some kind of nonsense. 
Um, but I think there is very, very little chance that we will actually see Donald Trump raise a right hand like he did, you know, in front of the church and during the Black Lives Matter movement on a Bible and uh, and actually swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He he will not do that. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. Real quickly, David, jury trial, a lot of, you know, jumping up and down, screaming about he should have had a jury. Was that a fault? Was that like, you know, an error by his attorneys and not requesting a jury trial? Or was it strategy on the part of his lawyers not requesting a jury trial? I think it's neither one. He doesn't have a right to a jury trial in this case, so they can request it all they want. Um, but in this case, because the remedies that the AG is seeking, that the attorney general is seeking involve primarily non-monetary remedies. And to the extent that, that, um, she's seeking monetary remedies, it's called, it's disgorgement, which is what's called an equitable remedy. It's not actually damages. Given the nature of the kinds of remedy that, that, um, that the attorney general is seeking, this is not the kind of case where you typically would get a jury. Uh, I'm not even sure under the executive law there is a right to a jury at all, but certainly given the kind of relief kind of remedies that they were seeking, barring him from, you know, operating his business, replacing the trustees, paying back money, you know, keeping him from acquiring real estate, all that stuff is stuff that only a judge can decide and a jury jury really is in position to determine. You mentioned the kids. Jennifer Ivanka got out of this case. And now Don Jr. and Eric are left. And David told me earlier that Ivanka got out because she had left the company. Uh, she, uh, I don't know, maybe had enough foresight, enough vision to know that what she was engaged in with her family would lead them to this moment one day. Uh, we haven't heard a lot, though, about Eric and Don Jr.'s involvement. Are we going to hear more about the roles that they played in this fraudulent scheme? Yeah, I mean, she was lucky that she got out on that statute of limitations. Um, and you're right; she probably was trying to distance herself from the uh, from the dirty business her father was involved in. Um, so today, uh, Weisselberg, the uh, former CFO who just got out of prison, um, <laughs> he was asked a lot of questions that kind of got to the edge of either Don Jr. or Eric's involvement. But he didn't really uh, implicate them. But, you know, you got to wonder. So he was asked about the before the Donald Trump was president and after what the situation was in terms of signing off on the statements of financial condition. And these were things that he would show to Donald Trump in draft form before he became president. But after he became president, because there was so much pressure for him to just to separate himself from the business, they you know the businesses went into those trusts that we mentioned, and it was running the business were you know Eric Weisselberg, uh, it was Weisselberg, Eric, and Don Jr. And when I Weisselberg was asked, well, who did you show those to? Who signed off on those statements? He said, I don't remember. <laughs> and I think it's possible he he doesn't remember because. Um, Maybe he just did it and he talked to Donald Trump also, or who knows what's going on, why he's not remembering. I find that highly suspicious because when you do routine things, you tend to forget, you know, forget, you know, what did you have for breakfast, you know, three years ago. But if something's unique, if it's not, if it's out of the ordinary and you've got to get a sign off from someone different from who you've done for decades, I think you remember. I think you remember whether you had to call on the phone or you had to Zoom or you had to see them in person. I think you'd remember. And so I don't buy his. I don't recall. Yeah. What are you thinking, David, about how Eric 
and Don Jr. will play in this trial. Do they matter? Uh, you know, is it significant that they were signing off on documents or, you know, talking to Weisselberg about, you know, these financial issues? I think you'll probably see, you know, more memory failures and more attempts to avoid implicating the kids. Um, you know, look, to the extent that there's any future in the Trump family, it's not Donald himself. I think we all know that his his time is limited and, you know, for various reasons, he's he's got limited capacity. Um, so it, it makes sense that they're going to try to insulate the kids as much as possible. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. These documents speak for themselves. The valuations are obviously fraudulent, obviously falsified. But hold on. So you expect if the judge makes a ruling against Trump, it will be against Trump and the kids as well. I think so. I think I, I think that, that the judge is likely to find enough of a connection between all these players you know, but but if there is any bone that's that's thrown, it will be to, you know, hang this all around Donald's head and the Trump, the Trump Foundation's head or the Trump Corporation's head. It's conceivable. You know, look, the judge has shown the, the statute of limitations issue with Ivanka. It could be that the kids are are sort of able to get sidestep this because there isn't enough direct evidence tying them to these falsified statements. But you know, at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter because really. Well, can you envision? Can you envision that if the kids are not uh, found to be complicit in this conspiracy, that they could then become, you know, the owners, the, the operators of these these properties that Donald Trump would be forbidden from doing business in New York or holding properties in New York, but his kids could go forward. I don't think that's going to happen. I think I think this judge has already tipped his hand that he's going to impose pretty draconian remedies. I mean, he's pulled the cert he's decided to pull the certifications on the businesses. That's effectively the death penalty for the Trump organization. You know, to the extent that he replaces trustees or puts a, a monitor in or anybody with any independence, um, it's going to completely neuter Don and uh, Don Jr. and Eric. You know, they're they're probably neutered at this point in any event. I mean, there's there's nothing that they're going to be able to do. Real quickly, Jennifer, which of the other pending trials that Donald Trump faces over the next 12 months do you think is going to be most significantly impacted by the ruling in this case? So I think that um, I think the some well, any 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 of the cases that go to his credibility, as well as the cases where there's concern about um, him threatening other people and, and, and looking into gag orders. So. Um, the case right now with Chutkin, um, where Jack Smith is trying to get that done, has a lot to do with threatening threatening that clerk, I would say. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, David, last question. When is this trial going to wrap up? Oh, I think it's going to go for for a long, you know, another month or month and a half. I think the judge said he expects it to go into December. You know, there's a lot of documents, a lot of records to go through. Um, the cross-examination by the defendants has proven to be, you know, slow and feckless and, and meandering. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it'll last a long time. All right. This is one we will all be watching, one of many <laughs> that we will all be watching involving uh, civil and criminal cases against Donald Trump. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Always a pleasure. Thank you, David, for your expertise. Uh, wow. This is unprecedented territory for all of us to see a former U.S. president sitting uh, in a state court of uh, being accused of fraud. And uh, we could not have written this, even if we thought when Donald Trump was elected president. All right.